And it was all of a sudden like the world woke up to this heinous injustice of sex trafficking. And as I thought about that and the way that that happened, really what I feel like God is doing is he's orchestrating this global awareness movement to begin to cause people to ask the question of why is this going on? There's a bigger kind of picture reality than just the issue of it itself. But as our hearts are provoked to want to do something to end this injustice, then we begin to take that journey of saying, okay, well, well, why is this going on? And it's in that context, I think, that the finger becomes pointed back, you know, towards ourselves, towards our culture to say, how, how have we created this, this issue? And so uh, I want to talk a little bit about that um, tonight. Uh, before I jump in, I just want to uh, highlight a few things. I want to, uh, things just give away, and I also brought some copies. Um, this is a message called Encountering the Love of God in a Culture of Lust. And I think this is really the key to standing in purity in the midst of our uh, hypersexualized culture is a deeper encounter uh, with the love of God. And um, so I spelled that out in this message. Uh, I brought a few copies with me if anybody wants to get one. Uh, but does anybody want this one? <laughs> I'll just... <laughs> I'm not going to be throwing this one, so if you want it, you're going to have to come up. This is called uh, Babylon, the Resurgence of History's Most Infamous City. Um, it's a book that I helped write. Um, my friend was the lead author in this. Uh, but it really helps to provide um, the underpinnings, the spiritual uh, and cultural underpinnings of uh, the injustice that we're seeing pervade our world today. This is a super helpful book, um, again, called Babylon. So anybody want this one here? All right. <laughs> And then the last one is uh, this documentary that we made that uh, Bethany referenced, Nefarious. Um, we brought some copies of this as well, so um, this one's a little bit lighter. Here, come on up in the, so I don't have to like, I don't want to kill anybody. Um, uh, let me uh, just pray again, just real fast. Lord, we just thank you again for our time together. We ask, Lord, that you would just um, touch our hearts, God, um, tonight, Lord. Just place your hand over your heart. Mm. Jesus. Lord, we just want to know your heart, Jesus. Lord, we just say that our whole lives, God, are about knowing you, God. Our whole lives are about becoming connected to your heart, God, and to our fellow man. And God, where Christianity has become about so many performances of religion, God, we just want to return to that place of empathy that you lived your life from. We ask you tonight, God, that you would just fill our hearts, God, with divine compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'll just uh, share a little bit of my personal story. I, um, I grew up in, in South Orange County, uh, California. And, um, oh, see. <laughs> and uh, in growing up in Southern California, we lived at there. I lived there at a time um, when there was, like, still land available. <laughs> I mean, I'm not that old, but it was a while ago. And, uh, 
And behind my house was just endless fields. And so my friends and I and my siblings, we would go out into these fields and we would hunt for snakes and ride motorcycles and build forts and just explore. And I had this amazing childhood. Being the youngest of four, I was uh, really sheltered. So there were some issues going on in my home, but I was very sheltered from those things. And I just lived this, this beautiful kind of life of innocence and exploration and um, I remember even thinking back to my worldview that time, just everything seemed, the world seemed like a place of possibility, a place of infinite beauty. And, um, man, I don't know why I'm, I, I'm just so emotional tonight. Um, when I was 11 years old, I woke up to the presence of evil in our world in a way that I never knew existed. And... Um, I saw a movie called The Accused with Jodie Foster. And it's a movie that depicts the brutal gang rape of a woman named Cheryl Arroyo and her ensuing fight for justice. And I remember being exposed to this horrific scene. I don't know what in the world I was doing seeing this movie, how I saw it. Um, but uh, even um, to this day, it traumatizes me when I think about it. Um, this is, you know, these images that, that we are exposed to in our culture, we've become so desensitized to, but, I mean, just one day on Facebook is enough to leave you with trauma for the rest of your life. I mean, it's like the things that are happening in our world that are so wrong. And I remember growing up with this deep conviction that rape has to be the worst thing that could ever happen to a person. That kind of violent intrusion of a person's humanity in the most defiling and degrading way. And, um, you know, about 20 years later, I went with my wife um, to visit a friend in the hospital who just had a baby, and we went to congratulate them on our date night. And in the course of conversation, they started to talk to us about this issue of human trafficking. And they told us about girls who were being forced into lives of prostitution. And I remember my wife and I were just overwhelmed and I remember all those feelings that I felt as a child came rushing back in and thinking like, God, how could this even be possible? That literally, you know, not just, we're not talking about aberrant cases of, you know, rape or, or a girl being forced into prostitution, but literally um, hundreds of thousands of women being forced into lifestyles of serial rape? And my wife and I were so overwhelmed. And um, two days later, I was getting ready to watch the Super Bowl. And I was super amped up because I'm a huge Bears fan. And I hadn't been to the Super Bowl in 22 years. But I remember even with all of that energy <laughs> and that testosterone, just, you know, getting amped up for the game, I remember just, um, so I couldn't escape the feelings. They all came flooding back into my mind, and I went to my office, and I just wept before the Lord, and my heart became pierced with this injustice in a way that was so palpable. My life has been marked, and I haven't recovered from just being aware of and woken up to this injustice, the fact that this could happen tonight. Like, as I lay my head down to sleep on a soft pillow with soft sheets, that somebody in this world, some woman or child, is being forced into one of these situations. I began to study um, 
took all of that emotion and I channeled it into a passion to learn more about this. What in the world was she talking about? What is going on? One of the first stories that I came upon was about this girl named Debbie, 15 years old, um, goes outside of her house um, to meet a friend in her SpongeBob pajamas at 5 o'clock in the afternoon while her mom is making dinner right here in the United States in Arizona. A car comes, pulls her inside, duct tapes her mouth, blindfolds her, drives her around the city with a gun to her head, begin the process of seasoning, take her to an apartment where she's gang raped, then she's held in a dog kennel for 40 days while she's prostituted out to men who are you know, searching websites like Backpage and these kind of things to come and, you know, to, to perpetrate essentially acts of rape on this girl. And after 40 days, she was captured out of this situation. I mean, just, you know, hearing stories like that, like, that's happening right here in the United States. There's a market for 15-year-old girls to have illicit sex with them. And I began to learn about these kind of dynamics, the, the way that people were just being taken and then seasoned and then their existence. I mean, being held literally in a dog cage for 40 days. But um, as I continued to research, we, um, we learned that this was happening to girls even at even younger ages. Um, I, uh, I was starting this awareness center. Um, we wanted to gather artifacts to share with people, to create a place where people could come and, and learn about um, modern-day sex slavery and, and sex trafficking. And I contacted my friend Dom Brewster in Cambodia, and I said, hey, I'm starting this place. Do you have any artifacts you know, on the ground um, there that could help tell this story? And uh, a week later, he emails me back. He says, yeah, I... I've got something I think you can use. This past week, we did a brothel raid. We rescued a girl, um, seven years old, and we still have her pajamas. He said, but there's just one problem. They're still stained with the blood from her abuse. Do you want them? And, <laughs> like, not really, you know, but, um, of course, to help tell this, the reality of this story, um, I said, yeah, please send them to me. And I remember, I'll never forget the day that they came in the mail, because it was a while later, i kind of forgotten about it, and I come home from work, and I, as I walk through the door, my wife says, babe, you got some um, package, some strange, strange package in the mail. They're like some dirty clothes. And so I walk over, and I have no idea what they are, and I, and I hold them up, and, and suddenly I realize what they are. They're these pajamas. I mean, they're like this big. And there's this blood stain. And I remember going, babe, these, these pajamas aren't dirty. They're stained with the blood of this girl's abuse. And I remember my wife and I just held each other in my kitchen that day and just wept. Like, seriously, like, who, who would violate a girl seven years old? What is wrong with our world? There's a massive industry to violate women and children like this. And we were just struck by this fact that this was happening to not just women and young women, but to small, prepubescent children. We learned as we pressed into this um, that girls that are fortunate enough to escape this nightmare um, still have 
overwhelming challenges and difficulties to overcome. Um, they talk to us about feelings of shame and isolation and fear. Um, one girl in particular, I think of her story, this 17-year-old girl named uh, Stefa from Moldova, and she was, um, she was forced into trafficking, and a horrific story, but she's rescued out. And then in talking about her life now, having been rescued, this is what she says. At night, when I go to bed, I pray. I pray my parents believe me that I was forced. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that being your prayer life? That the first thing that you think about when you close your eyes to pray is that my parents believe me that I was actually forced to do this? That I'm not a bad girl, that I'm not a prostitute. She said, I'm afraid to close my eyes to sleep because when I do, all I see is pain. I see the faces of all those men and I see my trafficker. I just want to forget, but I can't. If a Moldovan girl is rescued from a situation of sex trafficking where she has been forced into prostitution, when she is returned to her village and to her family, she will be ostracized from her community. She will be, she will be ostracized as dirty, as shameful, as um, essentially uh, worthless, used goods, and they're treated like throwaways. So that's why there's a 96% recidivism rate around the world of trafficking victims who are rescued out of it that go back into it. They don't know where they belong anymore in this world because there's a, there's a stigma. It's not just in Moldova. There's a stigma around women's sexuality around the world that we just do not know how to handle sexual brokenness. Another one of the consequences that we learned about of this issue of sex trafficking is the loss of a person's capacity for love. I remember sitting in a coffee shop in Amsterdam, and uh, I was listening to this woman's story, and it, her story was just unbelievable, the abuse that she suffered from early childhood. And she describes her whole journey, and then she reaches this point where she's kind of through with the narrative of her journey. And she starts to try to find language to describe what had happened to her, like in her heart, like what all of this abuse had amounted to. And she's fighting for words to explain it. And then she just begins to say over and over in broken English, tears pouring down her face. She just says, I could not love. I could not love. I could not love. Her heart actually reached a place where she did not even have the capacity for love anymore. And the sad thing about it was, is that in meeting this girl, you could see that all she ever wanted in life was love. But the way that she was so misused and so abused had so torn her capacity for love out. I mean, what greater tragedy could there be than the loss, having that stolen, that ability to be known, to know, to have that capacity for affection and intimacy and connection? She had been left like an empty shell. Albert Schweitzer once said, the tragedy of life is what dies inside a man while he lives. 
In the United States, there are 300,000 children at risk every single year of being trafficked. UNICEF estimates that another child is sold every 30 seconds around the world today. This is a massive industry. It is a $100 billion per year industry. The sex slave industry aspect of human trafficking alone is a $100 billion per year industry, according to the uh, International Labor Organization. When I was uh, traveling and documenting this and making nefarious and, and you know, continuing to just, I, we spent a lot of time just wanting to listen, just wanting to hear the stories, just wanting to understand. And uh, we went out to this out-of-the-way village um, called Swaipak. It's on the outskirts of Phnom Penh. And it's one of those places that you need a guide to get to. It's so out of the way. There's no street names. So you turn left at the chicken, you know, right at the cow, bl the blue fence, go this way. I mean, it's literally like, it's, and so we, we're, so we're making our way out there and, and there's just nothing but indigenous people around in dirt streets. But then all of a sudden we get into this street where the brothels are and all of a sudden, here's where a car stops or dust settles around our van and here's this, Western man, heavy set Western man, in his mid 40s, 50s, um, they're bartering for sex with a child. We get out of the van. I can't believe my eyes. I'm like, what in the world is going on? And um, in other words, to get to this place, you have to be very intentional. Like he wasn't there for the coffee. And um, so he knows, he sees our film crew, he starts taking off. So we start following him. Suddenly he breaks out into a sprint and he's running up the streets and when you run down the alley, he's, as we finally catch up to him at the main road, he's jumping on the back of a moped taxi and I literally grab him at the last second as he's taking off and pull him back and I find myself face to face with this man who had flown halfway across the world to come buy a child for sex. And in that moment, I don't even know what to do. Like I hadn't thought that far ahead. Part of me wanted to go Jack Bauer on him and Part of me was feeling sympathy for this man's just, how could somebody be reduced to such a cowardly expression of humanity that you would buy a child? Like, what happened to you? And I just, the only thing I could think to do in that moment was just say, don't ever come back here again. Don't ever come back here again. And we walked away from that experience. And later, a couple days later, uh, I started to think about that. And I started to realize, this is the thought that came to me. This guy did not get up yesterday and decide to fly halfway across the world to go buy a child for sex. What happened in this man's life? And then we start to think about the scope of trafficking around the world. I mean, we are talking about vast numbers of men who are lining up in red light districts all over the world. We went to all these places, and yeah, there were women for sale, and there were children for sale, but the thing that stuck out to me more was the fact that there were men lining up by the droves to purchase them. 1.5 million purchases of sex per day in Germany and Spain, Western civilized countries, and the statistics are out in Spain. They've done studies at the government level to show that 90% of the 400,000 girls in prostitution there are sex slaves. They're there by force. They're under the control of organized crime, right? 1.5 million purchases of sex per day. 
in that nation. 70% of men in places like Brazil and Cambodia that purchase sex. It is a massive global phenomenon. And we started to ask the question, what kind of society is producing so many, so many men willing to buy a woman or child for sex? Does that make sense? Like, at some level, we have to start asking these harder questions. What kind of society is producing so many men willing to buy a woman or child for sex? Now, please hear my tone that I'm not, we want to, I, I don't, I love men and I know many beautiful men out there and, you know, so this, I don't have something against men, okay? I don't want you to hear that in my tone. I hope that's not coming across, but we got to take an inventory for what the heck is going on. Um, the fact is this, is that sex trafficking uh, does not occur in a vacuum. It is the logical outcome of our cultural narrative. Sex trafficking would not occur apart from a facilitating culture. And so I want to just quickly talk about this idea of, of, of a, the great social experiment, which is really what you and I have all been a part of. We, we have been born into the world uh, in an age at a time like no other in history. In a sense, we're the first generation to grow up with um, mass exposure to, to media and, and the, 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 the images that are coming through um, all forms of media and internet and so on and so forth. And so in you know, this kind of social experiment, I think it's important to, to recognize the power of, of the media and the uniqueness of the time in which we live. Because really, what's, what's important to understand is that, that it's these stories that are coming through that are defining the narrative of our culture. And, and we are beings who, who construct our identity based on these stories, based on the things that are told to us that this is normal and this is not, right? Socialization is that process through which we internalize the messages and the stories of culture in constructing our identity. And so when you think about the fact, you know, that, that, um, that our ideas of what it means to be a socially acceptable man or woman are not simply genetically encoded into our biological genes, but they actually come from the stories that the culture tells us are normal, I think it's really important for us, especially in this media age, to say, well, what are the stories that the culture is telling? What are the stories that the culture are telling about sex and about what it means to be a man and about what it means to be a woman? And if you look at the story about, in, I'm talking about in pop culture, the story that is being told about sex is really this idea that sex is everything. Right? Sex is the god of our age. I mean, it is exalted as the end all be all of the human experience. Right? We've heard the sex sells marketing mantra, you know, that, that if you just associate sex with whatever your product is, then, you know, you'll have a greater chance of accelerating the sales of that particular product. It's, it's this exaltation, this glorification of sex in our culture. But, you know, the irony of it is, is that while we exalt sex as everything, meaning practically, just have lots of it and, you know, whatever, 
we at the same time strip it of any kind of ethical meaning or purpose or grounding. It's really tragic when you think about it because sex is, has intrinsic value because it's the only way in which we can give ourselves wholly and completely to another human being, right? That's the way that God designed it, that our act of sexual intercourse would say to our partner, I belong to you wholly, completely, exclusively, permanently, that there's a sharing and a mutuality in that experience of oneness that joins all three aspects of our constitution together, body, soul, and spirit. Sex is powerful. And yet our culture has said it's this, you know, it's everything, but it doesn't, ethically, it doesn't mean anything. And, you know, we could go back and, and you look into how we got there. And that's kind of a whole other teaching for another time. But just to say that, you know, with the, oh, man, I'm so tempted to go there. I know I don't have time. It's really important to understand this how we got to this point where we have divorced sexuality, sex, from relationship. In the 1960s, when there was this birth of an object sexuality, where it's divorced from relationship, it's about recreation, okay? But that was the manifestation of years and decades of the development of naturalism and on and on. I unfortunately can't go into all of it, but the point being is this divorce of sex from relationship. Well, recently, we've seen this accelerate, accelerate, accelerate through the media and all that. And recently, there was a book written by a lady named Donna Fritas in which she did a big study on college campuses to show, and, and what the study revealed is that the predominant form of sexual interaction today on college campuses is what they call hookup sex. And she documents that this, this really had a beginning point in like around 2003. In other words, where, where, the, where things shifted and this became the predominant way that people were relating to each other. And where now it's difficult on college campuses even to find somebody that you can have a relationship with. It's a hookup culture. Okay, but the other thing that we have to quantify in examining the stories of our culture is what is the culture telling us about women, about women's sexuality. And when you look at you know, the culture's message and the culture's story about women's sexuality, really what the culture is saying, what the pop culture is saying, is that your worth as a woman, your value as a woman, is knit to your sexuality. It's tied to your sex appeal. Um, if you think about the dominant images of women in our culture today, what are the dominant images of women in our culture? The dominant women, images of women in our culture are really these kind of hyper-sexualized images. But what, how does that affect us? So, so you're a young girl, and you're growing up, and you start to begin to reach early adolescence. You're 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, and you begin to look at the culture around you to construct your identity, to, ex to extrapolate ideas about what it means to be a woman, what it means to be successful, what it means to be powerful, okay? And as you do that, as you look to the culture around you, these are the dominant images that are pervading our culture today. And so if you ask um, 
take 100 girls, say 11 to 14 years old, and you ask these, these 100 girls that are 11 to 14 years old, how many of you can name me two or three pop culture icons, female pop culture icons, um, like Rihanna, you know, Britney Spears, Miley Cyrus, you know, this is what I'm talking about. Um, how many of those 100 girls do you think could name two or three pop culture stars? Probably all of them, right? Probably all 100 could at least name two or three of them, unless they've been living in a cave. Um, which is almost impossible today, because if you wanted to live in a cave, I'm sure the media would find some way to get to you. Um, but now you ask the same 100 girls, how many of you can name the three Supreme Court justices that are female? How many of those 100 girls do you think could name all three female Supreme Court justices? <laughs> Maybe one or two that grew up with a feminist mom, right? <laughs> Which, you know, I, I have a perspective. I like feminism. I think feminism is awesome. I, so I, don't, <laughs> I consider myself a feminist. So do what you do with that. But I mean, think about that. That, that we... What, so what does that say about what we value in our culture today? Take, take, this other, take this other example. Cosmopolitan Magazine is the most popular women's magazine out there, right? As the most popular women's magazine, you would expect Cosmopolitan to celebrate the women in our culture who've really achieved something special, right? That they have really risen above. They have excelled. Um, in whatever field that it is, kind of worthy of adoration and reverence, right? So, like, one of my heroes is Kelly Clark. She's this snowboarder, because I love the Olympics, and, and she's a snowboarder for the U.S. team, and she broke all these records years back and won all these gold medals. She was really awesome. You know, surely she be, should be on the cover, right? Not a chance. Not in a million years. You're never going to find her on the cover of Cosmopolitan magazine, no matter how many records she breaks. Why? Because she doesn't fit the narrow definition of hotness as it's defined in our culture today. She doesn't write the hair color. She doesn't write measurements. She's not the right height, right? But what you are going to see is Paris Hilton, Kim Kardashian, and nothing against those women, but you're going to see you're going to see a very narrow single dimensional story that is perpetuated and told over and over and over again about women's sexuality. Really what we are seeing today is the corporatization of sex. It's that you have these individuals, these business entrepreneur types who have discovered the value of harvesting women's sexuality and exploiting it for financial gain. And then, so this, this way of harvesting Women's sexuality has been industrialized through pornography, through advertising, through all these different industries. We're just making money off of selling us a dehumanized, objectified, narrow, shallow brand of femininity and sexuality. I remember uh, I was uh, recruited by MTV. To, I was on this show called Singled Out a while back, which I repented of because um, I wasn't with the Lord at this time. I was on the show called Singled Out, and they ended up recruiting me to be an intern at MTV. And, and I remember thinking, you know, um, that I'm going to go meet with Jenny McCarthy, or one of these really cool people, right, that they put out there. 
But who I met with is, was a 65-year-old woman with glasses on and a stack of papers this high all across her desk. I mean, it's these, that's, who's, that's who MTV is. It's not a cool factory. It's a cash factory. It's people who are sitting back, devising ways to harvest our sexuality in order to sell it back to us. And so we prop up this image that really nobody actually conforms to or, or can uphold this image, you know, but it becomes the standard by which we, um, we uh, understand our value, extrapolate our value, and gain our identity, all of these things in our world. This is, this is the story being told about women's sexuality in our culture. Um, I remember uh, doing some research on this in preparation for this new film that we're working on, which I'll show you a teaser trailer for in just a minute. And as I was doing some research, I couldn't believe how blatant this message is. Abercrombie & Fitch came out with a t-shirt. Four girls, four women that said, who needs brains when you have these? The most popular clothing company in our country th realized this would probably be a good idea. We'll sell a lot of these, two girls, right? I mean, how much more blatant can you be? I remember somebody said to me, you got to watch this show, Walking Dead. It's awesome. The story, blah, 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 blah. So the first scene was some little girl getting her head blown off because she's been zombified. And I'm thinking, why in the world did you tell me to watch this show? Okay, I'll give it one more scene. In the next scene, the main characters are talking about women, plural. But they don't refer to them as women. They refer to them as pairs of boobs. That's literally how they referred to them. So then we just, yeah, <laughs> that project ended there. Um, then I was watching the Academy Awards. I'm a movie buff. Uh, you know, I love to be entertained. I love to see all the actors, you know, in their element. And Seth MacFarlane gets up there and he sings a whole entire song about boobs. Just over and over again, just all the boobs of girls that we've seen in movies. And singing and dancing up on stage. And I'm thinking, you know, when the most popular clothing company in the nation has a shirt like that, when the most popular television show in our country has characters and thinks, talks about women like that, when the most popular award show in the world is singing songs like that, the message is very clear that women are not three-dimensional beings with preferences and history and experiences, right? They are a collection of sexual body parts. That's the message. That's the reality of it. But all of these examples are emblematic of the of this sexist underpinnings of our society in which women are seeing as having less value than men, and yet the value that they do have is seen to be sexual. Women growing up in this culture are socialized to objectify their sexuality in order to be successful, in order to be powerful, and here's the key word, in order to be visible. Because if you don't meet that standard, then you are rendered invisible. There's a, a different message that is directed towards uh, men concerning this issue of sexuality. And the message that is coming through the pop culture, the predominant message that is coming through in the pop culture 
about manhood, about what it means to be a sexual male, is to consume lots of women. So we, men and boys in this culture, are socialized to believe that our masculinity is defined by our ability to dominate and to control a woman. And I think that this has its ultimate expression in the realm of uh, sexual conquest. So when a man is promiscuous, he's considered a stud. He's considered a pimp. He's considered a player. In the male peer culture, this is, this is huge. And I'm not talking about manhood. If you ask men, most men, about manhood, yeah, they will give you the classic answer. So it means to be a protector and, you know, right? We had that. They got that. But when you talk about be a man, like what does that mean to be a man? You know, a big part of that is about men's consumption of women sexually. Did you hit that? I mean, that, and that's how we talk about it, right? In this objectified way. That it's something that we do to women. We hit that. That's how men talk to each other. And this is the, the social uh, context that we are brought up into. But this idea that men are studs, pimps are players, it reinforces this toxic, pseudo-masculine uh, belief system that is bred through the culture. Now, when women do that, when women um, behave sexually as they are pressured to do in our culture today, um, they are shamed for it. They are shamed for it as sluts, as whores. You know, I don't want to say all the names, but I mean, we've heard, you've heard these names. There's, there's a total double standard in the culture in terms of the way that, that men are treated when they act this out and the way that women are, are treated when they act it out. And this is the impossible dilemma that women and girls face in our male-dominated patriarchal system. We have actually created a world in which femininity cannot survive. You need to be sexual, really hypersexual, but not too sexual. <laughs> you know, it's an impossible line to walk. Women have to self-objectify in our culture. They have to see themselves through the male gaze in order to construct their ideas about value and purpose and meaning. It's a sad indictment of our culture. Um, but the story that's being told in the pop culture is that sex for women is not about achieving pleasure, intimacy, affection, connection, and love. It is about being available for a man to consume. It is about his pleasure. So, you know, the Super Bowl commercials. You're not going to see a man dressed up in Speedos selling Doritos in the Super Bowl commercial, right? It's the woman. It's always the woman, right? The message is clear. Women conform to the identity of a sex object, and men consume them because, after all, boys will be boys. Now, you think, where are you going with this message? How does this tie in with sex trafficking? This provides the foundational understanding for the way that our sexuality is becoming commodified in a rampant and unprecedented way across uh, our culture and across the world. Women are being socialized 
to be sold for sex. They are being socialized to find value in their sexuality as a commodity. And that is actually defined as what it means to be an empowering woman. So I interviewed this woman, uh, sex trafficking victim. At 14 years old, she was taken from a trafficker to Atlantic City. She completely, her whole, whole life upended. Taken to Atlantic City, placed on the streets, first night, you know, they dressed her up in these little clothes. She's standing out there on the streets of Atlantic City at 14 years old, her first night in trafficking. And I said to her, what did it feel like to be in that situation? that first night. And she said, I felt empowered. And I said, like, (laughs) what meaneth thou this? I was like, what do you mean? And and she said, oh, I was groomed by my culture long before I was groomed by my trafficker. We are seeing the widespread commodification of sex in our culture. Think about all the ways that men are encouraged to use women's bodies as a form of sexual entertainment in our culture, as commodities. I mean, if you think about everything from the ring girls at boxing matches, right, where in between rounds, they have these women that walk around in bikinis um, showing what the next round is going to be. I mean, it's, it's, it's this idea that, that women are ornamental in the lives of men. They're sexual trinkets. On the sidelines at NFL football games, where they don't even get a number. They're just on the sidelines, again, to be this ornamental, objectified sexual body. And then just, I mean, throughout the culture, there's a broad spectrum of from bikini baristas to lingerie cleaning services to hooters to all the sexually oriented businesses to stripping to pornography to prostitution. So the idea in our culture isn't like, how could sex trafficking be happening? But how couldn't it be happening? This is what we are growing up our boys into. We went around and talked to scores of young adults asking them, um, what was your age of first exposure to pornography? And we thought that some people would say, well, I'd never seen pornography or, you know, it was later. And we were getting all these young ages, you know, eight, seven, five, 11 years old. But all these boys were being exposed to pornography at a young age. We stopped asking um, that question, we start asking, do you know anybody that doesn't watch pornography? And of all these scores, almost no one could even identify a single person that they knew who didn't watch pornography. Pornography has become the form of sexual education in our world. And so this is the culture that men are being socialized up into, where we are, the, the culture where we are uh, forming our identity about what it means to be a man in this world. And it's the culture that women are being socialized up into as well. I want to just hit this last kind of point here um, in our time tonight about um, rewriting the social narrative of our culture. This, to me, is really where we have to draw up the battle lines, so to speak, in terms of forming a front against human trafficking. It's in the realm of rewriting the narrative of our culture. Slavery, um, historically, is always something that has been rooted in a social construct of thought in which exploitation is normalized 
under the condition of monetary benefit. In other words, that the ends justify the means. And so the challenge for abolitionists of previous generations was to actually shift the locust of thought surrounding the issue of slavery and the mass conscience of society to literally rewrite the narrative of their culture. Abraham Lincoln put it this way, public sentiment is everything. With public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. We've seen this reality play out in other movements as well. Take the women's suffragist movement, for example. Do you know that we lived, uh, there was a time in our nation's history when women could not vote? That was the mindset. The mindset of society at that time was that Women belonged in the home and doing other things, but surely not influencing the governance of this country. I mean, as crazy as that sounds to us now, that was actually the mentality of the society. Women should not be allowed to vote. <laughs> right? Until a few courageous people began to stand up and say, this is craziness. Why on earth have we created a world where women aren't allowed to vote, where women aren't allowed to participate in expressing their ideas about the leadership of our country? It's nuts. And they did. They shifted the society. They shifted those attitudes. But beloved, we today live in a country where Rihanna can make a music video about dollar bills and stripper poles poured up Right? That's then going to sell millions and millions and millions of downloads. Two girls. Like, do we not realize that our sexuality is being colonized by corporate pimps? I just briefly want to look at the power of creative media to shift the narrative of a culture in the three movements of abolition in history. You look back at all three waves of abolition in history, every single one of them was pioneered by a movement of creative media that turned the tide in that culture around the issue of slavery, starting with, with uh, Wilberforce's era. It was the drawings and it was the diagrams and the models that they created that was actually the catalytic galvanizing thing that turned the society, that, that, that created the momentum necessary to pass the legislation that would out abolish um, slavery in, in the British Empire. Thomas, uh, this is from a historian. Thomas Clarkson's drawings of the Liverpool-based uh, slave ship Brooks illustrated the horrible reality that slaves were forced to cross the Atlantic, packed together like sardines, lying in their own excrement and vomit for months. The picture was extremely shocking and effective. It allowed people to come into a tangible sense of the injustice of slavery. And it changed the consciousness of the society of that time. Um, during Lincoln's era, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? She wrote this book that actually paved the way for Lincoln's election. And it won, as one historian said, Historians said, contributed to the outbreak of the war by personalizing the political and economic arguments about slavery. When Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe, he said this to her, so you're that little woman who wrote that book that created this great war. He understood 
that it was this form of creative media that turned the tide in the society. Around the turn of the century, the most recent wave of abolition that we've seen was uh, King Leopold III's enslavement of the Congolese, which is one of the most brutal genocidal plunderings in history when he was just uh, enslaved a nation to harvest all the natural resources like rubber and ivory and so on and so forth. But he was denying the whole thing until they developed the first portable camera. And these documentarians went in with these cameras, took pictures of what was going on. And then they had what was called a magic uh, lantern projector. And they would, they would go and do screenings all over Europe and all over America in what, what, what were the first documentary screenings. And they were called them the magic lantern shows. And what they did is they exposed the injustice of what was going on. And it changed the mass consciousness of society about this injustice that was happening and paved the way for the abolition of the Congolese. King Leopold was forced to relinquish his control of that nation. So today we are entering the fourth wave of abolition in history. And like our predecessors who have gone before us, I think it's essential that we harness the power of creative media in whatever form or shape that may take, that we utilize this power to turn the tide um, on this injustice, to literally rewrite the narrative of our culture today. Berthold Breck once said this, art is not a mirror held up to reality, but a hammer with which to shape it. We've reached a point where I think it's important that we as a society begin to confront this heinous injustice of sex trafficking within the larger facilitating culture and that we stop using our resources and our influence to perpetuate the messages of our culture that are essentially enslaving our daughters. Like, why would we buy millions of records of Miley Cyrus? You know, can we rise up against the music industry and say we're not impressed with the way that you have um, exploited this girl's sexuality to sell records? I mean, does that make sense? Like, it seems insane to me that she would go on the VMAs, simulate masturbation, parade around like this, you know, sexual object, which is not rebellious. It's simply emblematic of the culture, okay? She's bought into the narrowly defined version of femininity in her culture, and then we all buy into it. Like, yeah, let's go get the record. I mean, I've got hope to believe that we as a society can begin to look on this exploitation and violation of femininity and rise up to make our voices heard in all forms of creative media to turn the tide on this. I want to say, uh, before I show you guys this teaser trailer in closing, that besides the obvious failure of creativity in the presentation of women in mass media, the story that is being told about women is simply not true. Can we just say that? They are lies. <laughs> Women are so much more, um, such, have such a broader spectrum than just being hot or just being sexual. Women are intellectual, emotional, spiritual, and religious, creative, athletic, familial, political, caring, compassionate, relational, and strong. I'm talking about the full breadth and scope of a woman that is powerful. They may desire 
autonomy and independence or family and children. They long for commitment and fidelity. They're searching for deeper meaning and purpose. They have history, memories, unique experiences. They long to have an impact on the world. Simply put, women are not merely a sexual buffet for the gratuitous appetites of men. They are the image bearers of God, and they are the crown of his creation. It just has to be said. It just has to be said. On August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King stood on the mall in Washington, D.C., and he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And today, we have an African-American president in the United States. And regardless of what your opinion is of Obama, it represents a massive progress in our nation in overcoming pervasive racism. And I think it's time for us to dream again. Right? It's time for us to dream again about a society in which women will be valued and safe and men will be respectful and honoring. But I have a dream that my daughter will grow up in a country and in a nation where she will not be judged by the color of her hair or the measurements of her figure, but by the content of her character. We overcame racism and we can overcome sexism. I believe that. Let's create a world where men are loving and respectful and women are valued and safe. Guys, let me uh, just, can we just take two more minutes to show you this teaser trailer? It's not public yet, um, so we, it's not out on the internet or anything, but we just wanted to give you a glimpse of this next film that we're working on. G touched upon tonight that regardless of your gender, male or female, whatever end of the spectrum that you may be on, are really sensitive issues that for some of us, it may have actually touched a tender place. Um, I know I just ministered at a women's conference two weeks ago and I touched on the is issue of um, women being defined by their sexual identity. And, and there was actually not one woman in the place that did not respond to the altar call and need ministry in that area. Um, so it's something, obviously, that even those of us in this room, there might be experiences from our childhood. And also from the male perspective, you know, when he highlighted issues of pornography and all of those things, there might be a place even in your heart that you feel as though in, in some degree you've actually par participated. Um, and so we want to make sure, in light of that, that we're sensitive to those needs and sensitive to your hearts and the posture of your heart right now. Um, so what we are going to do is they're, they're going to close out with a song. And there will be, if we could have some of our team, you know, to the, to the left and to the right, there will be people available to pray for you. Um, but I want to say, for me, even, yes, individually, but corporately, as a body of people that are praying in the city of Boston, as I said earlier, Boston's known for many things, but at this moment in history, I have faith and belief that God would find a people in Boston and that we would become known for actually helping to establish justice and truth. And this is what I want to say. I know that right now, tonight, we have a small community here. Tomorrow night, there will be a small community. But I want to challenge and provoke every single person under the sound of my voice. When Benji leaves Boston, I don't simply want to leave him with a, a, have him leave with a nice honorarium 
And just for the record's sake, he's requested and asked for nothing. But we have a generous community that would gladly sow into him as an individual. But I want to go way above and beyond that. The film that he's producing costs a million dollars to produce. They're in the home stretch of needing to raise 300000 which is a very small amount. That's not a lot. And I want to encourage every single person here. I know that there's students here. I know that there's business owners here. We're all in very different positions financially. It's not even about the amount that we give. We give to what we feel is priority. No matter how much you're struggling financially, if you want a $150 pair of boots, you find a way to get the money. You scrimp on your coffee money. You make room for what you value and what's a priority to you. So I want to encourage you, regardless of the monetary amount, that you would actually be found partnering with truth. That you would be found that as this messaging, as he, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not an artsy person, but for the first time when he was speaking about abolitionists and as far as the issue of art and the visual media, I've caught a vision for it in a way that I never have before, and the necessity of it specifically concerning this issue. And so I want to provoke every single person here that regardless of what you are able to sow in the amount that you would sow sacrificially and that you would be found partnering with truth and sowing in with the message of truth and being used that light would shine in the midst of darkness. And that truly, I believe people will be delivered even from watching this film. And so be a participant in that. Be a partner in that. And so there's baskets here in the front. There's, ush uh, do we have ushers in the, where are our ushers? There's envelopes. If you're making out checks, you can make them out to J-Hop Boston. Everything is going to go to Nefarious. Um, but there's envelopes here just in the midst of worship. And if you need prayer to the left, into the, can you raise your hand if you're praying for people? These two gentlemen over here, Sarah over here. And if we could have another female over here. Yeah, and if you would like to give a donation through credit card, we're able to do that. There's square one. If you go out actually to um, the table, the product table, you can give a donation via credit card. That's an option. So checks made out to J-Hop Boston. Envelopes are available if you need a record for your giving. And there's individuals available on each side. I encourage you, don't leave here tonight if there's something in your heart that you feel like the Holy Spirit was highlighting, that you can receive the prayer of agreement. We will be here tomorrow evening at 4 p.m. That is the regular time of our service on Sundays, so we kept consistent with that. So you're welcome to join us tomorrow. But let's sow into this film, and let's sow in sacrificially and receive prayer from either side.